are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here, speaking to you once again from Austria, just like I did last Thursday. However, this particular question and answer session is pre-recorded. We're not having the live chat. It's pre-recorded because uh, in the evening here in Austria, where I'm here at a pastor's conference, I'll be involved with the conference during the normal time, 12 noon Pacific time, when we have the question and answer. So next week, I'll be live once again, and you can interact with me live and on the live chat and give me your questions and comments, and I'll respond to them the best I can. Right now, I'm going to respond to some comments and questions that have come in via email or as comments on the YouTube channel or wherever else. So I just thought I'd get through a few of those, and it'll be a little bit shorter session today, but I thought I'd give you something in the question and answer department. Uh, first of all, here's a question from Larry. Uh, Larry asks this question. He says, Isaiah 9, verse 6, you say that Christ was born with the humanity of Adam and Eve before the fall. How could he be born of Mary and not inherit the sin nature? I can believe that he did not sin, but to be tempted without the fallen nature would render him effortlessly free of the temptation. Uh, Larry, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Let, Let me just give you my understanding of this. First of all, we would believe that Jesus was born innocent of a sin nature and that he was born in the same state that Adam and Eve were before the fall because uh, he had no sin in him whatsoever, neither inherited nor committed by him. And, and I don't have a hard time with it because even though Jesus was born of Mary, he had no earthly father he was born on the fatherly side by a miracle of God. Uh, and so it's important for us to remember that, that it was a miraculous um, conception within Mary, uh, what we call the, um, the um, virgin birth, of course. Now, which we really would call the virgin conception, but that's another matter altogether. Now, I, I can't prove this. Um, the Bible doesn't really say, though I think it's a logical assumption to make from what we can prove biblically, that in some way, I don't know if it's genetic, I don't know if it's spiritual, I don't know if it's a combination of the two, but in some way, the sin nature is transmitted through the generations by the Father. And this would mean Jesus, born with no earthly father, would have been born without a sin nature. Uh, and again, we just see that Jesus was completely free from sin, either inherited sin from Adam or whoever, or sin that he committed. Now, regarding the idea of, does that mean that the temptations that Jesus felt were not real? Well, I would say that it's true that there must have been something different in the dynamic of temptation that Jesus felt, but I would want to add this. Please understand that Adam did not have a sin nature, Eve as well. I'm talking about at the very beginning of creation. Nevertheless, they faced real temptation. So we know it's possible for a person who does not have a sin nature to face real temptation because Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. So some of this is rare. I mean, look, let's face it. There have only been three people who have ever existed who did knew what it was like 
to not have a sin nature. Adam, Eve, and that was only temporary. And then, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. So, uh, Mary, I hope that helps you with that. Um, and uh, thanks for your question. Uh, here's the next one from Gino. Gino says, and he's quoting from some of the series that we put up on YouTube, verse-by-verse teaching through the book of James. He's talking about that verse in James where it says, in the same way the tongue is a small part of the body, yet can boast of great achievements. And then he says, David, I would like to know, uh, think about Christians giving themselves titles, apostle, reverend, pastor, evangelist, elder, etc. Is the title taken for granted, never questioned? Does it make the average Christian admire them more, or of course, cause them to think about this verse? Because what he's talking about here in James is that we shouldn't boast of great achievements. And Gina, you're absolutely right. It is entirely possible for a person to take a title unto themselves, pastor, elder, evangelist. I think some of the most dangerous is to call oneself an apostle. And you just take that title to yourself, and you expect other people to recognize it. Now, I don't think there should be any kind of Christian office title that a person just takes to themselves. Now, I may do the work of a pastor without ever having the title of a pastor. I may do the work of an evangelist without ever having the title of evangelist. But I shouldn't take or, you know, request of others that they use the title pastor or evangelist or whatever it would be if I have taken that title myself. In other words, I shouldn't take the title pastor. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with having the title pastor if a person is generally a pastor. There's nothing wrong with it as long as it's something that I haven't given to myself that other people have recognized, David, you're a pastor. David, you have a pastoral gift or an evangelist gift or the gift of whatever it might else be. See, I think that titles can be very dangerous when we take them upon ourselves. The whole point of a title is just simply that other people see something in you as well. Now, I would add this too. It's always strange and I think at least a bit dangerous when somebody insists upon a title. You know, Uh, I am a pastor. I've been a pastor for many years. Uh, That's a title that's been given to me by other people. But I certainly don't insist that people call me Pastor David. Now, some people are very polite, and they do, and I appreciate that. I appreciate their politeness. Uh, But it's no demand I make. I I, I don't think I've ever thought once in my life, hey, they didn't call me pastor. What's up with that? It's just not the way I think, and I think that that's, at least in that small regard, that's a healthy thing on my part. Uh, we shouldn't be hung up on titles. We shouldn't be obsessed with titles. We should just realize that, um, listen, what really matters is doing whatever work God has called us to do before the Lord. And um, if it really is a true gift, a calling, other people will recognize it as well, and that title will come. But even if it does come, it's really not that important. So um, I, I think that's important. G- Jesus let us know that it's entirely possible for people to get too hung up on titles. All right, next question here from Randy. He says, there seems to be a revived interest in the New Testament in Aramaic from the Eastern sources. 
Have you ever found any insights from Aramaic translation? Now, that's a very interesting question there. Uh, I haven't really delved much into Aramaic translations of the Bible, although there's one that I have had some contact with and that I know many commentators that I've studied have mentioned. And what they refer to, it's an it's a ancient uh, translation of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, from Hebrew and Greek, of course, into the Aramaic language called the Peshitta. And, and I don't know if I'm actually pronouncing that correctly, because I've never heard anybody talk about it. I've only read about it. But this is an Aramaic translation that's used in Syrian, Syriac churches dating back centuries. And so it's kind of a recognized translation. And um, many commentators that I read will reference back to that for some point or another. I think that there's interesting things that we can learn from the Aramaic language because Aramaic in some form was a language that was spoken in New Testament times. By the way, there's also portions of the Bible, a little bit in Ezra and a little bit in Daniel, well, more than just a little bit in Daniel, a few chapters in Daniel, that are written in Aramaic. Um, so this is a biblical language, at least a little bit. And um, because it was of that culture and of that time, there are some insights that we can gather from it. I, I just think that it's great to bring a little bit of illumination but I've heard some people get a little too extreme in this. That there are some theories out there, and I don't give these any weight. Some people like to say that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic and then translated into Greek. Um, I've also heard the theory that some people have that certain books of the Bible were originally written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek. Sometimes people say that about the letter to the Hebrews, and sometimes people say that about the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I think the evidence isn't overwhelming for both of those cases, but I kind of understand where people get up. But I, the, the, the bottom line is that we need to deal first with the records we have of the Greek and Hebrew um, manuscripts of the Bible. And other translations and stuff can give us illumination, can give us some insights. I, I don't think it's anything terribly dramatic, uh, but there are certain things that we can pick up and learn from along the way that we should be grateful for. So I, I, I just kind of give a mild yes to your question. Your question was, have I ever found any new insights from the Aramaic? I, I'm aware they're out there. I know that some of the commentators I've read uh, have given some illumination from that, but, but nothing really dramatic or kind of earth-shaking. Okay, next question. A question came in asking about, actually it was a reference to a YouTube video that they pointed me to. Uh, and, and, and the YouTube video was all about um, the law of the Old Testament and how Christians are under the law of the Old Testament. And kind of the basic sense of this um, thing was that uh, the law is not abolished under Jesus and that anybody who thinks that the law is set aside they're taking it only from the record of one person, the Apostle Paul, who speaks in several of his letters about this, but it's only one person, and that that's not valid because uh, we should only accept something by the mouth of two or three witnesses and not only one person. Well, I found that an interesting assertion from the uh, uh, video. But the first thing I'd like to say is that I understand why these things get some traction and popularity. First of all, 
in the Christian world, we're always kind of drawn to Jewish source and Hebrew source things. And by the way, I think that's a good thing. We do understand that fundamentally Christianity is Jewish. And, uh, it, it, you know, we, we realize that there is richness and illumination for us. Um, but at the same time, we realize that in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, Greek or other, that, that we're all one in Jesus Christ. Now, so I understand that, and I also understand it, that there are always Christians who are zealous for obedience. And I'll say this. Obedience is not legalism. If Christians are exhorted to obedience in the Christian life, that in and of itself is not legalistic. It's not legalistic to obey God. It's obedient to obey God. So we can't get off on the wrong track and just start making obedience to God the same as legalism. It's not the same. And look, I think that we need more obedience to God in the Christian world today, not less. But I will say this. Looking to fulfill that obedience by a focus on the law of Moses or the Old Testament law, I think that's wrongheaded. You see, the gentleman in the video that I was pointed to, his whole point was, it's wrong for Christians to say the law was abolished. And on that particular point, I would say I agree. It is wrong for Christians to say or think that the law is abolished. What it is, is it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that means that there is a very real way in which we are no longer under the law. Now, of course, there is a aspect of the moral law of God. Um, do not steal is an example of the moral law of God. Do not murder. These are moral prescriptions that God gave in the Old Testament law. And the New Testament carries on that same moral law of God from the Old Testament. So we understand that completely. But we also understand that there is a sacrificial law in the Old Testament. There is a priestly and a temple law in the Old Testament. There are ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And if we're going to say that we are under the law from the Old Testament, then let me just put it this way. Get out your goat and sacrifice it. If, if we're under the law, if the law is not fulfilled in Jesus Christ, then we are under all the law, the sacrificial law, the ceremonial law, the priestly and the temple law. And a lot of times when people talk about us, well, we should be under the Old Testament law and this and that, what they really mean is the moral law, in which I would largely agree with, and then they want to pick and choose a few things from the ceremonial law, a few things from the priestly law, but not the whole package. And I just want you to see, Jesus fulfilled these things. Jesus fulfilled the sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled the feasts. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. Again, all these things are explained for us in the New Testament. Jesus fulfilled the, uh, all the ceremonial cleansings that are spoken of in the uh, Old Testament law. So we understand that as we as Christians, we're not ignoring these things. We're not saying that they're not important. We're saying that they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they're not just a little bit fulfilled. Just pick and choose which ones fulfilled. They're fulfilled, period. Therefore, we are not under the sacrificial law, the priestly and the temple law, the ceremonial law. These things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, 
And we don't need to come back to them. And as for Paul, being one witness to this idea of it being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, I, I would protest against that statement. I would say, first of all, this idea that believers are not under the law is first presented to us in the book of Acts, especially in the whole controversy in Acts chapters 14 and 15, what's known as the Jerusalem Council. There it was determined that um, for Gentiles coming into the church, that they did not have to first become Jewish before they could become Christians. That Gentiles could make a straight line to Jesus. They did not have to come to Jesus through Moses and the Mosaic Law. That they could go straight to Jesus. And, of course, the same thing is true for Jewish believers as well. They can go straight to Jesus. There is no need to go through the Mosaic Law and circumcision and all the rest of it, uh, ceremonial obedience, all the rest that would go along with that. So um, that's repeated for us in the book of Acts. It's repeated for us, I would say, most pointedly, in the letter to the Hebrews. And I know people will make the case that Paul wrote Hebrews. I, I would probably disagree on that particular point. I know it's, it can't be proven categorically one way or the other. But I, I, I would say, no, it's in Hebrews, it's in Acts, and it's in Paul. Um, it's not Paul's testimony alone to the fact that the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And again, there's moral law that is incumbent upon the Christian to obey, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's ceremonial law, sacrificial law, priestly and temple law fulfilled in Jesus, and we thank the Lord for that. All right, that last question we're going to get to here. Somebody that's asking the question, and this is just sort of a fun question at best. Actually, they, they, they write a very kind note at the beginning of their letter, but I don't need to read the kind note. I just say this, the fun question that they ask is, do I have a favorite Bible story? Um, because I mentioned in a previous uh, question and time that I don't really have a favorite book of the Bible. My favorite book of the Bible is whatever I'm reading at the time. Uh, so I thank the Lord for that, uh, that I just, I'm just so, I just love God's word, and I love meeting God in his word. I mean, I, I just want you to know that, that my love for the Bible and the word of God, it's not just academic, it's not just because I want to know Bible facts or win games or Bible trivia, it's because Jesus meets me in his word, and uh, he meets me all over his word, and I'm grateful for that. So I kind of went on in a previous video. I don't particularly have a favorite Bible store, uh, Bible book of the Bible, but they want to know, um, do I have a favorite Bible story? And they say, I like this, that their favorite Bible story is the coin and the fish. Do you remember that story from the Gospels where Jesus uh, explained to Peter that they had a tax obligation to pay? And he says, listen, uh, Peter, we're not under obligation before God, in a sense, to pay this tax. Because we're sons, we're not servants. But uh, we want to fulfill all righteousness. So, Peter, go out and go fishing and catch a fish with a line and a hook, which was not the way that they normally fished in those days. Uh, but fishermen, fishing operations, they would use nets and such. You go out and get your hook in your line and hook a fish. And in the fish that Peter caught was a coin that would pay the taxes for Jesus and Peter. It's a wonderful story. Now, I have to say this. I don't have a favorite Bible story. 
and maybe my line is somewhat the same as I would say for my favorite uh, book of the Bible. Um, whatever story I'm reading, I'm delighted with right now in the Bible. But I will say this about stories in the Bible. I, I think that God is a brilliant author and that God knows how to tell stories and create drama and tell a narrative and spin out a story like nobody else. And I think that's just an amazing, a marvelous thing that God does. So, yeah, I really note that, that God has a way of telling an amazing story. And um, I think one of the best things that we can do as Bible preachers and teachers, those of us watching who may fall into that category, is let the power of the biblical story that we read and teach from just tell itself. You know, when you're teaching about the life of Jesus, what an amazing story. You know, the classic book was titled, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And it was about the life of Jesus. And it's true, it is the greatest story ever told. Uh, the record of the book of Acts, what an amazing story. When I say story, I don't mean fantasy. I mean real life story. But it's a tremendous real life story. You talk about the characters of the Old Testament. You talk about Joseph and Moses and Abraham and David and Elijah and all those. You just go, amazing, amazing stories. And there's tremendous power in just telling those stories and letting them unfold as they are in the scriptures and treating them as if they're real. That the sights, the sounds, the smells, all the rest of it are real and that we should reckon with them. So uh, thanks for that input there. Uh, very glad that you sent it in. And uh, we love the beautiful stories of the Bible. Well, as I said today, uh, it's a shorter session of our time, uh, question and answer time. It's pre-recorded. Uh, I'm going to put this up at the normal time, 12 noon Pacific time, here on Thursday. Behind me is a window with a beautiful scene of the uh, Austrian mountains and a lake. I'm here at a wonderful conference center, uh, kind of in southeastern Austria, where we are um, having a pastor's conference. It's been a wonderfully blessed time, uh, really beautiful, getting together and getting together with these men, uh, so many of them I've known for years. This wonderful time of mutual encouragement and blessing. Uh, so uh, glad I could join you here from there. Next week, uh, I'll be back in Santa Barbara, and we'll have our regular question and answer time live on Thursdays. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks uh, to all of you who pray for the work of Enduring Word, the Bible commentary that we do. Uh, very happy to say that within the last week, since the last video, we just posted uh, commentary uh, in uh, Mandarin uh, on the book of Colossians. That's up on the website in Enduring Word. And little by little, we're taking the land and doing that and getting our two targeted languages um, in Arabic and in Mandarin. We're getting those done. And I'm just happy to say that we've got more translation projects on, but those are our two special focus ones. Please continue to pray for that work. Thank you to all those who pray, all those who support the work. I'm very grateful for it. And God bless you, and I'll see you in our next question and answer. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com. Dot com.